to Acts chapter 28 as we head into our final installments of this book that we have been in since I believe the fall of 2016. Uh, we have been looking at Acts with various breaks for summers and um, Christmas time. But, and then last fall, we took a break to look at 1 John, but we are finally coming to the conclusion of Acts chapter 28. Last week, we saw God's sovereign hand in the fairly famous story, at least if you grew up in Sunday school, of Paul and the shipwreck. We saw God's sovereign hand working wisely and faithfully through the faithful actions of Paul and others, that God's providential care for us it works through our actions and our activities. And this was further articulated, if you know the story, if you look at the beginning of Acts chapter 28. Not only did Paul escape shipwreck, but then he comes ashore at the island of Malta. And he, they're building a fire, and Paul is bitten by a snake, and yet the Lord's protecting hand is upon Paul. And he does not die, either because the snake wasn't poisonous or because God spared Paul's life. Again, God holding, protecting Paul. And the whole por- purpose of Luke in communicating these stories is to show God's protecting, sovereign, providential hand to bring about his promises that he has told Paul that I will bring you to Rome where you will be able to communicate the gospel there. And that is where we get to this morning, that God's promises are fulfilled here in our reading this morning. So we pick up at verse 11 of Acts chapter 28. I'm going to do what we call commentative reading. I'm going to stop at another number of places to give you a little bit of details and explanations that I won't necessarily be able to get to uh, once I get into the meat of my sermon. So um, bear with me as I walk through that. Pick it up in verse 11. Hear God's word. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Petoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage." And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. I'm going to stop there real quick. What we see here is already that there are believers. A couple of things to note. There are already believers. There's already an established church in Italy and in Rome. In fact, the very famous, in fact, the, uh, Paul's theological um, magnum opus, his treatise in the book of Romans, was written to the church in Rome probably two to three years earlier before this, despite the fact that he had never met them. But he finally gets to meet the church in Rome here. But the church is existing and it's thriving in Rome at this time. The other thing I want you to see here is that Paul, despite the fact that he is um, imprisoned of sorts, that he is not thrown in jail. He is actually in what is called house arrest, where he is um, chained to a soldier. Usually there would be about three soldiers and they would rotate throughout the day, each taking about eight hours to, whoa, whoa. Um, um, we literally have lights going on and off throughout our sanctuary. So again, the, the, the awkwardness. Um, but we... And, but Paul is chained to a Roman soldiers throughout his day, but he's, he's given much freedom. He, people are able to visit him. In fact, the, he, if the soldier is willing, he's able to go out into the city and go to various places uh, with, while he's chained to this Roman soldier. And so he has a great amount of freedom. Picking up in verse 17. After three days, he, he being Paul, called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers... 
yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Remember the whole context is the why Paul is in Rome. He was accused way back in Jerusalem of being against the Jewish practices and traditions and their laws. And so eventually in order to save his life, he had to appeal to Caesar despite the fact that he wasn't guilty of the charges against him. Verse 18. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge against my, against my nation. And that's interesting phraseology there. Paul says, despite the fact that they brought an unjust suit against me, I am not going to hold it against them. Paul is not being vindictive in his time in Rome. For this reason, verse 20, for this reason, therefore, I have asked you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, that's how they thought of Christianity as being a sect of Judaism. With regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Real quick, what we see here is Paul is faithful to his normal practice. Throughout Acts, as Paul goes into a city, who are the first people that he goes and finds? The Jews. He goes and finds the synagogue or any kind of Jewish group that's meeting in order to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. What he has said is we go to the gospel, go to the Jew first, then to the Gentiles. Then Paul, after he's found the Jewish leaders of the city, he goes to them and he makes his defense, right? He says, I was not guilty of what they charged me of in Jerusalem. I was found uh, innocent by the authorities. And he was, I should have been set free, but I appeal to Caesar in order to protect my life. Third, we also see that he was not planning to be vindictive to the Jews before Caesar. In other words, if you were in Paul's case, and, and if you were in our particular litigious society, if someone brought a um, felonious lawsuit against you, what would you do? Countersue. And Paul is saying, I am not going to countersue against my Jewish brethren. So he's saying, I am not against Jewish people. I am, a, I, I, am, I am for my people. I love my people. I'm bringing the good news to my people. And the fourth thing we see is he says, listen, what I am not against the Jewish laws and traditions, what I am for is the fulfillment of what, it says in verse 20, of the hope of Israel. We're going to look at that in more detail in just a minute. But what I want you to see here is that Jews respond in two ways. The first thing they, way they respond is they say, no one has sent us any letters about you. In other words, what has apparently happened is that the leaders in the Jerusalem council have decided that they are not going to pursue Paul all the way to Caesar and to bring this suit against him. And therefore, they have not hired any lawyers in Rome to bring this suit before Caesar. The second thing you'd see is they also say, we don't know hardly anything about this Christian sect, but what we have heard is no good. In other words, that there are problems wherever they rise up. Now, there is a history to this in Rome. About 10 years earlier, um, there was a, an uprising of the Jewish leaders against Christians. And they had such a um, significant riot in the city rising up against the Christians that the Caesar at the time, Claudius, expelled all the Jews from the city. You remember, remember Agrippa, uh, not Agrippa, um, who, who are the two? They're, they're later, early on, they become uh, partners with Paul, who they're expelled because of their Jewishness from Rome. And the reason why they're expelled is because the Jews had actually been persecuting Christians. And the Romans don't like any kind of uprisings, in, Romans don't like any kind of uprisings in their cities. And only four years earlier had the Jews been allowed to re-enter Rome. And so they're probably a little bit tentative about kind of having any debate with Paul. 
They may either they may be lying here saying we don't know anything about Christianity, or they may literally become be unfamiliar with it because they're so new to the city that they haven't had that many interactions with Christians. They're only what they've heard is from hearsay from various parts of the world. But they do want to know more. And so that's where we pick up in verse 23. Now, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging. So they came to Paul's house in greater numbers. And here's what happened. From morning till evening, Paul expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed, and they departed after Paul made this statement. He said this, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through the Isaiah the prophet, and Paul's going to quote from Isaiah 6. And here's what he says, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And then Paul adds this, therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. What he's saying here is, uh, listen, wherever, and this is the pattern that has gone on throughout Acts, that Paul will go to his Jewish brethren first. He will communicate the gospel to them over and over and over again. But when they reject in mass, he says, okay, if you're going to reject it in mass, now I'm going to go to the Gentiles and proclaim the gospel to them because they have hearts that are willing and ready to hear. He's actually claiming what Isaiah says about the Israelite people in Isaiah 6, that you have hard hearts, that you refuse to listen. In fact, God has allowed your hearts to become closed to the gospel at this point. In verse 30, we end Acts in this way. Then Paul says this, or Luke says this about Paul. And he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, and without hindrance. And there we end Acts and God's word in the book of Acts this morning. Well, there we go. We enter into the sermon part, the preaching part based on this text. I'll begin it this way. Um, there is something about, in the way we watch TV now, because you don't necessarily watch it where you have to wait a week for the next week's show, you watch everything on Hulu and Amazon Prime and Netflix what do we find ourselves doing? It's 10.30 at night. You've already watched three episodes of some, whatever particular episode or show you're watching. And you, will, you look at your spouse, you look at your friend, and you go, oh, just one more. Why do we do that? Because most shows, like I remember Hardy Boys books being like this. Every chapter ended with what? A cliffhanger in which you want, there is a tension at the end of the show, and you want to go, I want to know how, what's, what's going to, how is this going to be resolved? There's a question here at the end of this show, and I want to find out what's going to happen. Well, what we have here in Acts is something that agitates us because we have a very unsatisfying ending to this book. This is a book that spans 30 years of time. Paul, the whole point of the last half of the book has essentially been Paul getting to Rome, Paul proclaiming the gospel to Caesar, that that has been the direction of the book for the last four to five years and the last four to five chapters of Acts. And yet we are asking ourselves as we come into Acts chapter 28, all right, it's the last, it's the last chapter. How is it going to end? And it ends in such a, such a mediocre, kind of anticlimactic sort of way with Paul kind of just sitting under house arrest and continuing to kind of preach the gospel. 
It is so utterly, can you imagine if MASH had ended this way? Or if Seinfeld or Friends, we would, there would be an uprising that, that was utterly unsatisfactory. But the reason why Acts ends this way, and most commentators agree on this, is we tend to begin to think about Acts as you move along. is because Paul is such a central character. We begin to think of Acts as being about Paul and his ministry. But that's never been actually the centric, the centric point of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says this. Luke gives his thesis for the whole book. He says this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in Acts chapter 1, 1, the whole reason why he's written the book is he says, I have written to you, O Theophilus, to give you a faithful account of all that Jesus is continuing to do. The book of Acts is about the continued work of Jesus in this world to bring redemption to the proclamation of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit through God's people. That's what Acts is about. And therefore, does Acts have an ending? No. The whole point of Acts is to say, this is the beginning of the story. I'm reminded of the Winston Churchill uh, quote when after the British had won their first battle in World War II at the Battle of Alamein. And it was finally going, okay, maybe the tide is going to turn. But some people were saying, oh, my goodness, this is now going to be the end. We're we're finally going to sweep the Nazis off the face of the earth. And Churchill got up and he warned his people. He said, listen, this is not the end. This is not even the beginning of the end. But perhaps this is the end of the beginning. Acts chapter 28 is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end of God's redemptive work in this world. But perhaps it is the end of the beginning. That's what Acts chapter 28 is. That's why it ends in the way it is. It ends as a cliffhanger because it is a call for you and I to participate. In other words, you and I are Acts chapter 29. And we're Acts chapter 30. And we're Acts chapter 31. And we're probably more like Acts chapter 189 at this point. In which we are participating in the story of redemptive history that Paul and the apostles in the early church began. And we now get to join in with this story. That God is telling a story in this world. And I want to call you this morning, one final time, to live into the great redemptive story that God is telling in this world. The reality is this, particularly in America, where we can be so comfortable. And the Christian life can be so much about my felt needs and my minor changes in my life. And what's God going to do for me is that we lose sight of the fact that you have been called into a great story. It is the epic of all of human history. It is the story that God is telling across his history and time and space, and you get to be a part of it. But so many of us are living in these tiny little narratives. The great narrative of your life could go something like this. The great thing of my life is to find just the one, that one relationship, that one person who will fulfill me. Compare that. That's the epic of your life. Right? And that's why we have movies like that over and over and over again. Because that's, how we, that's the center of life for us. The great epic of my life is to build this company. That that's the theme of my life. That the great epic of my life is to raise these kids so that they look good in front of other people. The epic of my life is my sexual prowess. These are, such, these are small stories and many of them are not bad stories. But the problem is when we lose these smaller stories and we lose the context of the fact that they are supposed to fit in with the larger story, we lose sight of what God has called us to. And so one time, one final time this morning from Acts, I want to call you to take your part in this story. 
your blip on the radar screen of redemptive history. And our call, our call, what we see in Acts, is God's people is to be the messengers of the good news of God's kingdom to the worlds. That's how you participate in this story. That you would be messengers to your neighbors and messengers to your children and messengers to your unbelieving parents and messengers to your roommates. That this is what you're called to do, to participate in the good news of the gospel that is taking over the world. So one final kind, I want to call you this, and I want to give you three reasons, three things, three reasons from Acts chapter 28 to compel you to be a part of this narrative. The first reason is this. They all revolve around the message and the messenger. The first reason is this, is because the message that we have is hopeful. The message that we have is hopeful. Acts chapter 28, verse 20, Paul goes to his Jewish brethren in Rome, and he says this. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you. Why? Since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Paul has affirmed over and over and over again in these trials that the reason why he is in chains is not because he is less Jewish, but because he is bringing a gospel, a good news that is a fulfillment of all the Old Testament hopes of Israel. Now, this is a little bit esoteric for us, especially if you're not used to kind of the story of the Bible entirely. So let me see if I can bring you up to date on this. From its very conception... The people of Israel, that there has been a promise, a hope that they have looked to. When God comes to Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, it says this. God comes to Abraham and he says this. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and on him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What's the promise here? I will make you into a great kingdom, Abraham. I'll make you into a great nation. Now, Israel became very numerous. And there's this little tiny shred of a moment in human history for about 60 years where Israel has some significant power and autonomy. And that's it. If you ever go read your humanities books about ancient history, like we in the West, because of our Christendom, we give way more influence and focus to it than, we, than actually it deserves. Because it is this tiny little fragment and fraction of human history. What's going on? The, the promise of Genesis chapter 12, Israel is going, wait a second, when are we going to be the great nation? We're going to be such a great nation in all the nations of the earth that it's going to flow from our blessings to them. When's that going to happen? It's never been fulfilled. And every generation, there had been a hope of Israel. They would become the great kingdom that they had promised that they would become. And after tasting, they got a little taste of it during whose reign? King David's reign. And actually, God promises it again there in 2 Samuel um, chapter 7, verse 16. It says this. He says it to David. And you and your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, this is a promise. And any good Israelite who reads that promise goes, yes, that was the high point of Israel. That was awesome. But things have not gone well since David. Things have gone really badly. We have been essentially an enslaved people. And so what is at the heart of Paul's message is this, that the one who has come to fulfill the promise to David and the promise to Abraham, he has come. And his name is King, King Jesus. And kings, when they come, what do they bring naturally with them? A kingdom. This is the focus of Paul's preaching. We see it twice in this text. The kingdom of God, verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to his lodging in great numbers, and from morning till evening he expounded them. And what did he expound upon? Testifying to the kingdom of God. 
Then Acts ends this way, verse 30 and 31. He lived there two years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to see him, proclaiming what? The kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. The message of the kingdom of God is hopeful because when God's kingdom comes, the way it's described in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you go and read those Old Testament prophets, we are very confused because it uses very poetic language and we don't necessarily understand how to take prophecy in our day and age. But we, when you read that and you actually you understand what is going on in those prophecies is they're all about the kingdom of God. Isaiah, over and over again, what are the, the, the context of the prophets is Israel is enslaved for their sinfulness. And God will give them, oh, he said, this is going to be the cursings upon you, and these are the things that are going to happen to you, but there's going to be this big but somewhere, about every three or four chapters, but, and it'll go on for a whole chapter and describe the beauty of the kingdom of God, when God's going to restore the hopes of Israel, when he's going to bring peace and shalom to their, their country. And that's what Paul is saying that he is bringing, that Jesus has brought that the king has come, the anointed one, the Messiah, who would save not only Israel, but save the whole world. And I want you to see that the king, the Messiah, he expounds not just upon the kingdom, the fact that the kingdom of God is going to come in Jesus and bring peace and shalom that we have longed for, but it comes through the work of Jesus. Paul says the kingdom of God has been reestablished in this world, and the king has come, and the king's name is Jesus Christ. And it says there, along with his teaching on the kingdom of God, what does he expound to them? What does he teach about? It says he shows them from the law and the prophets how everything is fulfilled in Jesus. This is how Luke likes to end his, end his books. Remember the end of the gospel of Luke? Luke chapter 24, it's the Emmaus Road. When Jesus walks on the road after his resurrection with two men, and the, what he expounds upon in the course of that walk, is it says he show, it shows them from all the Old Testament, from the laws and the prophets, that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. In other words, the hope of Israel, the long, the, the looked-for king who would save our kingdom, who would make us into a great nation, he has come. The Israelites should be excited about this. This should be their longing, that he is showing how the prophets point to Jesus' cross and his resurrection and his ascension as king. Now, this is amazing. This is amazing that he would point to Jesus. Understand the historical context of where Paul's at. And understand how radical and crazy the nature of this Messiah could be to those who are hearing it. Where is Paul proclaiming about the nature of a kingdom and a king, this King Jesus? In Rome. He is sitting and he is proclaiming the gospel in the shadow of Caesar, the most powerful man perhaps the world has ever known. And he is coming and he's saying, listen, Caesar, that's nice. Let me tell you about the hope, the king of the world. His name is Jesus. Oh, what happened to Jesus? Oh, yeah, he was killed on a cross. What? What are we talking about here? We're celebrating a king who died on a cross? This is the foolishness of the gospel that Paul talks about in other places. This is ludicrous. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, or chapter 1, verse 18 says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What we're going to find here, and we're going to look at it a little bit later, is that Paul is going to spend his time in jail witnessing to his, the soldiers to who he's chained to, to such a point that he, 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 there's great revival that happens within the Roman um, guards, the imperial guard. But we see this and later on in Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, that because so many people had become believers through Paul's ministry in Caesar's house, that it says this, Caesar's house greets you when he writes to the people in Philippi. 
And but we, what we found there is in the early part of Christianity that there is a one of the earliest sketches that we have and earliest pieces of art that depicts a crucifixion, true crucifixion is called Alexamenos Sabbatai Theos. It, it's, it's this. Alexamenos worships his God. And it's the picture, it's like essentially a stick figure of a Roman guard lifting his hands up to a man on a cross, except the man has a donkey head. Now, what does that mean? It is graffiti mocking the early Christians for the foolishness that they would worship a man, worship a king, and what are they calling him? Only a donkey would die like this. Only a fool would die like this, and only fools would worship this God. That's the proclamation that Paul is giving, and yet what he's doing is he is, de- he is clearly depicting and contrasting Jesus with Caesar. How does Caesar reign his kingdom? By his power and his might. How does the kingdom of God come? By the weakness and the foolishness of a cross. And yet in that, in that we have the hope of the world. Because it's only through the foolishness of becoming weak and dying that Jesus was able to defeat the greatest enemies that we have. To actually give us hope. What are the things that destroy hope in this world? Sin and death. And that's exactly what Jesus came to destroy. But I want you to see it didn't just simply come. Paul says this is the hope of Israel. But then they get angry at him. And he says, I'm going to the Gentiles. And they walk away from him when he says he's going to the Gentiles. And this has been the pattern throughout Acts. Paul says, I'm going to proclaim the gospel not just to you Jews, but I'm going to proclaim the gospel to all peoples in all nations. And they go, yeah, we're not going to have any of that. Why? Because they have, like many of us, they are living a small story and they are living for a small kingdom. They are living for an ethnic Israelite kingdom. And the Old Testament and the New Testament both affirm this, that the kingdom of God is worldwide. It is worldwide. This is what God came and communicated to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, right? I will make you a blessing to what? Just Israel? To all nations is the means by which I'm going to be a blessing to all nations. Isaiah chapter 49 verse 6, it says here, it's talking about, it's as if God is talking to the future Messiah. And it says this. He says, it is too light a thing, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. You hear what he's saying there? Hey, Messiah, Jesus to come. God is speaking to him and saying, God the Father is speaking to God the Son, and he's saying, it's, that's, that's small fry for you to save just Israel. Here's my plan for you. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach where? To the ends of the earth. That our message is hopeful because it's not just for Americans. Our message is hopeful because it's not just for ethnic Israelites. Our message is hopeful because it's not just for good boys and good little girls. Our message is hopeful because it's for all peoples, all tribes, and tongues. And so the kingdom of God is the hope of all nations. It's what they desperately need to hear. You see, and the kingdom of God brings with it peace. The hope of all, all of human history has been this, right? And it's like, why... Why girls in beauty pageants get asked the question, how are we going to bring about world peace? What do you want more than anything else? I want world peace. Well, listen, this has been the great, it is, it is a good and legitimate, reasonable calling. Some of you are giving your lives for justice and peace and shalom in this world. We fight wars. Why? In the name of peace. But the great debate, great, there's always been two sides of the issue of how you're going to bring peace about. There's two options. The two options are this, and you see it. There's either pacifism, which is usually liberal idealism, 
Or there's just war theory, which is usually the conservative realistic view on war. Now, do either of them work? Do either of them bring about peace? Pacifism, what happens if you say to an invading army, we'll bring peace by just laying, by just laying here? What happens? They go ahead and just run over you, don't they? That doesn't work for anybody. Now, for the just war theory people, how, our wars, have they brought about much peace? Every couple, every couple years, we slaughter another couple thousand, a hundred thousand, and has it ever brought lasting peace upon this world? No, it's never brought lasting peace. Um, Woodrow Wilson, who would be known as the great liberal idealist of the 20th century, right before the World War II, he had been fighting against World War, allowing World War, um, the United States to enter into World War I. He didn't want it to happen, but he says this in what has become known his peace without victory speech. He believed the cost of victory was so great and so awful and would have such lasting ramifications that any kind of victory that supposedly would bring peace would bring no peace at all. And here's what he said. Victory would mean peace forced upon a loser. Forced upon a loser. A victor's terms imposed upon the vanquished. It would be accepted in humiliation under duress, under duress as an intolerable sacrifice and would leave an accepted in humiliation under duress, intolerable sacrifice, and would leave a sting, a resentment, a bitter memory upon which terms of peace would rest, not permanently, but only upon quicksand. He was a prophet, right? Did World War I lead to any kind of lasting peace? No, if you know anything about the history of World War II, the Germans were rising up and saying, we got shafted in World War I. That was bad, and we're not going to stand for it. It was a peace that was on quicksand, so what happened again? The slaughter of millions upon millions upon millions. Now, here's the reality. If we want peace in this world, if we want a kingdom of peace, it's going to require, to require this. It requires bloodshed. That's what the conservative realists would say, the just war theory. If you want peace, it's going to require bloodshed, and yet... We also would long for a lasting peace. And the only means by which you're going to have that is when God brings peace through a king who said, I will bring peace, but I'll bring it not through the shedding of the blood of my enemies, but through the shedding of my own blood. In other words, the peace that comes without victory, that's the cross. The peace that looks like defeat, that's the only means by which there's going to be peace. In which Jesus comes and he brings a peaceful kingdom because he dies. He is destroyed by the powers of this world. But in through doing so, by being defeated in weakness, he actually brings about his kingdom. And defeats sin and death and he brings life to this world. And guess what, church? When you bring the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're not only bringing that message, but you live it out by being a people who willingly get up and say, I will die so that people can understand this message. The peace of this world comes as Christians, like their Savior, are willing to die and by proclaiming a peaceable kingdom. So our message is hopeful. The second thing I want you to see from Acts chapter 28, to call you to be a part, to be messengers, is this. Join in the message, the great story of being proclaimers across the world, because the messenger is sustained and rewarded. It's just sustained, but I decided to add rewarded this morning as well. You know, one of the great irritations of Acts chapter 28 is you find yourself asking, what in the world happens to Paul? He stands trial before Caesar. How's it go? 
Now, there's debates in history is exactly what happened, but we think from uh, 1 Timothy and Titus and 2 Timothy and from early historians such as Clement and Eusebius that Paul was actually released by Caesar, that the Jews never brought um, any kind of charges against him before Caesar, and so he was eventually released after a couple years. And some actually believe that, therefore, Paul, he left, and he went and continued to take the gospel perhaps all the way to Spain. Whether he made it to Spain or not, we're not necessarily sure, but we do know at some point he comes back to Asia Minor and does ministry in Crete. And what begins to happen, and during that time, after his release before Caesar, he writes the books of 1 Timothy and he writes Titus. But then Paul is rearrested, most likely in the city of Troas, because he writes in 2 Timothy, which is his last known letter that we have. He writes in 2 Timothy during his imprisonment, where he's imprisoned and he go before Caesar a second time. He says in 2 Timothy, he says, will someone please bring my cloak to me? Most likely meaning that that was the place where he was in prison. And by this time, this is about AD 64, AD 67, Nero has lost his mind. And he is persecuting Christians. And so it was probably around AD 64, AD 67 that Paul was beheaded. Now the tone in 2 Timothy is the tone Paul shows here is that he did not expect to be released. He expected that he was going to die. In fact, he says this in 2 Timothy verses 4, 6 through 8. These are famous words. And these are the words that I want to call you to as messengers of the gospel, a great image for your life. Paul says this as he's expecting to die. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He had a sense of what's going to happen to him. But how does he describe his life? I love this imagery. I'm poured out like a drink offering. This is, he's giving the imagery of an Old Testament sacrifice that after they had slaughtered the cow and after they had slaughtered the goat and after they had slaughtered the birds, the last thing that they would, they would put on the sacrifice is they would take a glass of wine and they would throw it on the, on the hot fire. Now what happens to liquid when it's thrown on hot steaming coals? And vapor and gone. This tells us how Paul views his life. That I am here for a moment in time, and I'm to do my, my king's bidding. I am his messenger, but my life is going to be thrown out. Like water on a fire, I am here for but a moment, and then I'm a vapor. That doesn't sound like someone who's sustained. It sounds like something very small. But I want you to see this. Here's the promise. Look at verse 7 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. And Paul goes on to say this, But I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth. What is ahead for him? Henceforth, what is laid up for me is the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward me on that day. And not only me, but also to who have loved his appearing. And then look at verse 16 through 18. At my defense, no one came to stand by me. He's talking about his first appearance before Caesar. No one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But here's the truth. But the Lord stood by me. And he strengthened me so that through my message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. It's probably referring to Nero. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Why? To him be the glory and forever and ever. What is Paul saying? I'm going to die. He has every expectation he's going to die. How does he view his life as but a vapor and but a moment? But how does he view his life eternally? That God is going to keep my soul safe and he has given me an everlasting life where I'll be with God in his heavenly kingdom. Where I'll give glory and honor to him forever and ever and ever. Brothers and sisters, this is the call to you. That you would view your life, that you would say, I am pouring out my life for those around me. 
I pour every moment, every part of my life, every fabric of my being is to display the kingdom of God and proclaim the message of the kingdom of God and the good news of Jesus Christ. And then I will let my life be nothing but a mere momentary sizzle upon the fire and then I am vapor and I am gone. Because what that then means is my worship, my worship will then reverberate throughout all of heavenly history. Because when you worship what kind of gods? Is God momentary like we are? God is eternal and he is infinite. And when you worship that God, that worship, you can imagine this. To be in a place where your voice echoes. I was at a concert on Thursday night. And, and this particular musician was using this thing called a, um, where they, they, um, they rotate a, a sound. Right? They, create, they do a riff on their guitar, and then they, they play it. It rounds back over and over and over again, and they layer it, and they layer it, and they layer it. Your praise of your life echoes throughout eternity. It echoes in heaven to the glory of God. Now, I don't want to be overly Eastern here, because you're not going to be this drop in the bucket that's just dropped into the mind of God. But what heaven will be is that you will join all of human history and all those who've used their sizzling, small, vaporous life to praise the Lord in the proclamation of the gospel. And you will intentionally, you'll hear the echoes of your own sacrifice in heaven. And you will join it like a glorious harmony that is adding layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of glory to the Lord. And God will sustain you for that. What is Paul? Is Paul regretful of the death that's coming? By no means. He's been looking forward to it. And Paul, we believe, is, was beheaded. Paul gets a new body. Oh, messengers. Listen, we, we live such small stories because it's too risky to live into the great story. We think we'll lose ourselves. But Jesus says, the one who seeks to gain his life will lose it. But those who seek to lose their life for my sake will gain it for all of eternity. This is how you're sustained, brothers and sisters. By being joined up into the greater story of the gospel. One last point this morning. We're done with Acts. Join the story by being a messenger because of this. Because the message is unstoppable. It's unconquerable. Why does Luke end telling us what happens not, by not telling us what happens to Paul? Why does he not tell us about the trial of Paul? Was he able to preach the gospel to Caesar? Did it happen? That's the questions we might be asking. But the point is this, though, of Acts. Luke does not care to tell us about what happens to Paul because the point of Acts is, is the gospel moving forward? That's the point of Acts. The reason why he doesn't focus on Paul is because it's not about Paul. It's about the unconquerable, unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Acts is about. I want to give you two immediate examples, two examples from Paul's life that show this. While Paul is imprisoned, it shows how the gospel is unhindered. While Paul is imprisoned, you would think he wouldn't have a great gospel ministry. But listen to this. Paul writes during his time in Rome, during this two years, these four books, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. How many of you have been encouraged by those things? The ministry of Paul is reverberates throughout human history. And then look at just the details of what Paul is doing while he's, while he's imprisoned. The gospel continues to go forward in Philemon. Philemon, is the, he writes a letter to a man named um, Philemon, who is the owner of a man named Onesimus who had escaped from Philemon. And he runs into Paul at Rome, and Paul leads Onesimus to the Lord and disciples Onesimus to the point that he views him as a son in the faith. And so he writes to Philemon asking for Philemon to set Onesimus free. And he says this in Philemon 8, 
Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, which is the command to set him free, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. When did he become a father spiritually? While he was imprisoned. The unhindered gospel, brothers and sisters. Prison cannot halt it. We don't know how many stories like this are of Paul's, but he is doing labor. He's taking advantage of whatever freedom he has to share the gospel. We see in Acts chapter 28 that there he's attached to guards. What happens to those guards? Can you imagine being Paul's guard? Paul's going, you know, Paul, Paul gets attached to somebody. He goes, you and me, bro. Eight hours. You can't get away. Who's chained here? Me or you? What happens? Paul has a, has a captive audience in these soldiers. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he says this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really happened to advance the gospel. Remember, Paul is doing, saying this in prison. What has happened to me has served to do what? To advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout where? The entire imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. You get the sense that the talk of the imperial guard is what? The good news of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel goes unhindered. You may chain it, but you cannot stop it. Let's see, look, look at the broader example of this truth. The unhindered gospel in Acts. The whole pattern of Acts follows this. Over and over we see this pattern. People will stop, seek to stop the growth of the word, and yet it cannot be stopped. Acts 6 verse 7 it says this. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to death. Acts chapter 9 verse 31 So the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It did what? It multiplied. Acts chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of God did what? It increased and it multiplied. Acts chapter 16, 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Acts 19, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily in the midst of persecution and storms in the midst of fighting even in the church of unfaithfulness by his disciples in every place that the gospel goes it is increased and it is multiplied acts ends with paul under the under arrest paul is chained but the gospel cannot be ever chained it cannot be stopped this is what paul tells timothy when he's awaiting trial when he's about to die he says this in second timothy uh, chapter 2 verse 8 and 9 Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as I preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Praise be to the Lord. The gospel is unhindered. The gospel, brothers and sisters, as we are told by Jesus, the gospel will always be threatened, but it will never, ever, ever be stopped. Progress of the gospel is what Acts is all about. This is what Luke's main concern is, that it cannot be stopped. You know in Jurassic Park, you know, Jurassic, the, whole, the, whole, the whole theory behind Jurassic Park is they could control the dinosaur population, couldn't they? And they bring like, the best scientists of the world, the chief scientist, and he's showing off Jurassic Park, and they're going, how in the world do you control that population? He says, well, listen, we've cloned them, and we've only cloned female dinosaurs, so they cannot procreate. And you might remember um, the kind of odd, eccentric um, to, uh, a scientist, Ian, Dr. Ian Malcolm, and he's quite distressed by this, and he says this, as he's looking at this, and he's going, 
I don't think you can do this. I don't think you can stop multiplication. And they go, are you, are you saying that there could be life out of simply females? And he says this, I don't know. I'm simply saying this, that life finds a way. And that is the truth of human history. That at the darkest moments of the darkest places that God has found a way. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a place in Italy where there's a cemetery with a large marble slab over a grave. And apparently when they were burying the man who was, bur- who was put in this, in this grave, an acorn fell into the grave. And over the last hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, that acorn has died and produced a tree. And slowly but surely that tree has broken through marble. So there is a grand tree running right up out of the cemetery. Why? Because it, life cannot be stopped. The gospel is unstoppable. It's uncomparable. If you're going to give your life to something, give your life to this. Give your life to this. It's a greater story. It gives your life purpose and hope and significance more than any other stories that you can live into. Would you become messengers or proclaimers of the good news of Jesus Christ, that the king has come? And his kingdom was one of peace and hope and life. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you. Thank you for Acts and for the encouragement we get in this book because we see that it's not up to us in our power. That we can simply raise our hands to you and say, God, I have no idea why you would want me to be your messenger. I am weak and I am feeble and I am small, and I am broken. Lord, those are good things to admit to you. But gracious God, may we then also say, God, I I trust you because what I see in Acts is that you, you use weak and small and broken men in the worst moments of their life to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And so gracious God, we give you our lives and we say, would you use us? Would you use us? to share the good news to the world that so desperately needs it, to bring the hope that is needed in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray, amen.